Blog Talk Radio. Pero no estoy ofendiendo a nadie. Ok. Yo no estoy ofendiendo a nadie, ok. You have the freedom to speak about what you're saying right now. You can't say that to my parents. They speak English not perfect, but they speak it. Shut up. Ya, no hable español porque no quiero señores que hablen español. What is going on in America? A subject that is hands-off, but is basically at the forefront of all headlines in America today. And we deal with racism in the Latino community. And what you just heard was an exchange between a racist and a Hispanic woman trying to find her way in a very prejudiced world. Tonight, AJC Radio addresses a troubling issue, and we focus tonight on the racial disparities against the Latino communities in America. Folks, hold on to your seats. AJC Radio goes down a very troubling road as we address racism among Latinos in America. Hang on to your seats, folks. We take off right now. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio, and we're coming live from Colorado Springs, Colorado, where the temperature is 75 degrees, partly sunny, and I tell you what, we have a show tonight that will raise temperatures as we address a very troubling issue, racism, the Latino community really being forgotten and lost and thrown away, and tonight we focus on how to change that, but the troubling statistics and the racial profiling and all the ugly things, if you will, that addresses uh, this issue. And it is ugly whenever you deal with racism on any level. Uh, it is ugly. And we're going to deal with it tonight. I'm Lamont Banks along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Dennis Merritt and the entire AJC radio team. And tonight uh, we get ready to get busy, if you will, with this very troubling issue. Lisa, disclaimer for our listeners, please. Yes, we just want to remind everyone that we are not attorneys and that a just cause does not provide legal advice. 
You'll want to contact your personal legal advisor for all of your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a Just Cause or AJC Radio. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend a little of your evening with us. And thank you for that, Lisa. And Dennis, talking uh, prior to kickoff, if you will, that's what we call it here at AJC Radio, kickoff. Uh, as we get into a uh, troubling issue, Latino communities, uh, contributors to this country, economically, socially, and in every way, give a huge amount to this country. Uh, and we're going to be dealing with uh, those issues, how they have been stereotyped. Uh, we're going to deal with uh, uh, the, the sheriff down there in Arizona, uh, dealing with those issues, with, with the discrimination and all the things that they hide behind the law to treat people inhumane. Not something that we want to uh, definitely uh, shy away from here. Your thoughts, Dennis, as we deal with this racial issue in the Latino community. I tell you, it's, it's, it's just out of control. Uh, that clip, I mean, wow. I mean, it's, it's like the only ones that, you know, should be allowed in this world, according to that, that person, was, you know, the, the, the white American. And I, I tell you, that's sad to say that, you know, the, the hardworking Latinos, I mean, I mean, they work hard. I mean, they take jobs that others, uh, you know, other uh, groups won't take. And then we got the nerve to get mad, you know, because they're coming in our country. But anyway, I'm telling you, it's just it's sad. Any type of racism is sad. But, I mean, it's just ridiculous when we take it to that point and we're not concerned, no compassion whatsoever about, you know, the American people. And, Cliff, uh, we were talking prior to the show as well. Uh, we have an issue. We're going to address and touch on a firestorm, if you will, that's happening in the Republican Party right now uh, again, with comments made by, uh, front, uh, well, the presumptive nominee, Donald Trump, uh, in regards to this judge uh, that is has a, from what I've heard and researched and read and listened to, uh, impeccable record uh, of fairness and doing what he's doing. And he is, he is of course, on every headline uh, in that firestorm it, dealing with racism, even on that level, which is a very high one. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at all the issues around this situation with this judge, uh, you know, from the facts, this judge actually said that he would put the trial off until after the election to ensure it didn't interfere with anything. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are out there saying, well, you know, Donald Trump is now using the uh, political platform of the presidential nomination to deal with his civil action, which is totally against the law. I mean, you cannot do that. Uh, but the facts will shake out. The situation will end. But the, the whole idea of uh, what he said, Sam, that, you know, somebody cannot cannot make a, a, a decision based off their race, that is like, you know, Speaker of the House Ryan said, that is the definition a of a racist comment. Absolutely. And, and uh, it just, it is very troubling, and to have the, uh, as you said, a presumptive nominee for the Republican Party to say that, and then, you know, hear a lot of people say, well, I'm still going to vote for him. Well, how, how do you make that decision? Well, I just don't I'll, get it. I'll tell you what, it's a troubling situation. It has shook the foundation of the Republican Party right now. It, everybody is scrambling, trying to uh, get around that. But wherever racism and dissent uh, is, uh, you're going to have uh, problems and division. And, I mean, everything just kind of grows from that. We'll actually have the opportunity tonight, ladies and gentlemen of America. Uh, we'll be joined by Professor Joe R. Fegan. Uh, he is uh, a professor, uh, and he, basically a little bit about him. He grew up in Houston, Texas, where he completed high school, graduating from Baylor University. Uh, and he has addressed a lot of issues. Uh, he accepted a position as a so associate professor at the University of Texas, uh, where he taught for 20 years. He then came to Texas A&M, 
uh, and has studied racism and sexism issues in society and dealing with uh, uh, with some the Latino racism and those questions. He's going to be able to answer a lot of uh, questions that you might have tonight. Uh, we will also give the invitation, if you want to join in the conversation tonight on this program, uh, feel free to call 347-838-8976. That's 347-838-8976. And we are going to address the issue. We're also going to hear a couple of clips tonight uh, from uh, journalist Ramos uh, from, I believe, the Telemundo the Univision Network. Uh, actually has been targeted uh, because he has asked the tough questions in regards to uh, whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's uh, pol- politicians, whoever, that have said outrageous things uh, about uh, even uh, uh, immigrants. Uh, they're automatically tagged as lawbreakers, as trouble. You're going to be shocked, and maybe not, given the time we live in these days, but the blatant disrespect for another human being based upon their race and what their affiliation is and you know, one lady, and, and I'll, we'll get to that clip uh, um, uh, later, but made the statement that uh, ISIS, you're safer with ISIS than with Mexicans. Wow. Uh, have you lost your mind is the question that would be, wow. would be posed. So we're going to address all of that. And um, before we go there tonight, folks, we, we have to take a moment tonight uh, and, and remember a uh, champion, if you will, uh, America's champion, and we're talking about the passing of Muhammad Ali. We, we have to take a moment uh, to remember the champ uh, and who affected society, not only with what he did in the ring, uh, but took a very strong political stand against the Vietnam War uh, and stood, stood his ground regardless of the risk. But uh, we wanted to hear a little bit of uh, Muhammad Ali doing what he did best. And here he is. Come here. Come here. Muhammad Ali, born Cassius Clay in Louisville, Kentucky in 1942. Cassius Clay, excuse me, in Louisville, Kentucky. In 1942, Muhammad Ali became an Olympic gold medalist in 1960 and the world heavyweight boxing champion in 1964. Following his suspension for refusing military service, Ali reclaimed the heavyweight title two more times during the 1970s, winning fame bouts against Joe Frazier and George Foreman along the way. Diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 1984, Ali devoted much of his time to 
uh, philanthropy, earning the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005. He recently passed away at the tender age of 74, June 3rd, last Friday. Farewell, Ali. We bid you farewell. We'll be right back. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experience some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff, but he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at 1-855-529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight we deal with the racism 
and the targeting, if you will, of the Latino communities right here in America. Something that a lot of folks uh, don't want to deal with, but tonight AJC Radio gives the Latino community a voice. And that voice is to speak out against the racism, the targeting, and the write-down hate, if you will, that is demonstrated towards Latino Americans. Uh, We will deal with the immigration issue and the immigrants or the illegal immigrants that happen to be here in America and uh, what is being done to address that issue. But uh, Dennis Cliff Lisa, we had, I'm sure a few years ago, uh, you remember when President Obama took executive action with the DREAM Act. Uh, The DREAM Act was set in place to avoid children, innocent children from being deported. These are people who grew up, kids who grew up in America from childhood, uh, went to school, were in college, pursuing a degree, doing all these things. All they know is America. And the, what you call the uh, straight line approach to just deport everybody, no matter who suffers as a result of it, uh, I salute the president for having, and he didn't have to do that. He did it because he had no cooperation from Congress. And those to the right. Exactly. That's why he took that action. Dennis, your thoughts? Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's a great if you if you look at it. The Dream Act was, you know, put in place to to allow the children, like you said, that were born in America, you know, the opportunity to you know get, stay in the states, get their education, and and you know, become great citizens. And that was that 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 that's what that was about. But you always got the far right you know that it's about it's our country you know who are they to you know who are you to say that uh, the children of uh, those that that are legally in this country should be allowed to stay in this country i mean who are we is man become thinking that he could become god or something i mean cuz you're just treating people as though you know if you're not my race then you, you don't need to be in this country. No, 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 absolutely, uh, Dennis. And uh, I'll tell you right now, folks, a little bit of fact-finding and, and the importance of the Hispanic community in this country. They are relevant, and they are very relevant, and they, are, uh, they contribute to the success of this country, to the growth of this country. But look, take a look at these statistics. It says Hispanics are the nation's largest minority group among its fastest-growing populations. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, this is 2013, the Hispanic population in 2012 was 53 million people, making up 17% of the U.S. population. That sounds like they're relevant. Okay, so do we treat 53 million people? And here's the thing. We talk how African Americans have been targeted. They've been, uh, you know, pointed out and and. Uh, stereotypes, if you will, which is true. But the Hispanic community are suffering great, I I call it persecution, in the homeland, on the homeland. Well, I mean, when you look at, you look at, I mean, let's use a few examples. The people who come across from Cuba. How is there, for one group of people, you, you step on American soil, out of the Atlantic Sea, if you step on the soil, you are now uh, basically accepted, protected, given safe haven in America, uh, that you're, you're pretty much automatically, you're a citizen. You made it over, okay? You touched American soil, you're good. 
if you come off the Atlantic. You come up by way of South America, Mexico. The statement nowadays is we're building a wall to keep you out. And if your kids were born here, we're looking for a way to deport them as well. Yeah. This, this is the the sickest, most – I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. It has always been – America has always been the melting pot of people from everywhere. And the safe haven. Exactly. This is supposed to be the place where everybody has come to say, okay, I ran as a refugee. I ran from war. I ran for from a tyrannical, uh, tyrannical government. I ran to America for a safe haven, and now the message that America is portraying is now we're going to build a wall if you come over, if you're coming from Mexico. Now we're going to take your kids if you're from Mexico. We're going to deport your children. We're not going to give your children citizenship. It makes absolutely no sense, and it does not abide by the rules that America have always had. If you are American-born, you are an American citizen. That is the bottom line. Yeah, that's the bottom line. It says here uh, that, uh, according to a Pew Research poll, Latino people are the second most discriminated against ethnic group after African Americans in America. The second, did you hear that, ladies and gentlemen? The second most discriminated against ethnic group in America. In 2011, less than 30% of Hispanic students graduated from high school. Less than 4% earned advanced college degrees. More than 20% of Hispanic females under the age of 18 live below the poverty level. In a study conducted by Rutgers University, 22% of Hispanic and Latino workers reporting, reported experiencing workplace discrimination and c- compared to only 6% of whites. Working in a discriminatory uh, conditions often leads to depression, lack of self-confidence, bitterness, and withdrawal from work. Hispanic females earn roughly 54 cents for every dollar earned by a white non-Hispanic male, which accounts for a loss of almost $24,000 in a year's time. This is sick. So you wonder why this, ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake about it. This is why we say that the collateral damage of racism you're looking at it when you start taking money from based upon one's uh ethnic background and you say well we're going to pay you less money because you're you're mexican or you're hispanic or you're this or that that is a disgrace that it's just, what are people running to america for to escape the racism the dangers as cliff alluded to the tyrancy of governments, took, you know, and Cliff, I think you make a good point. You, some of these folks are running from cartels. Exactly. I was, again, I was wrongfully convicted. Put that out there first. And when I was in county jail, they, began, I heard some stories, and I said to some of my Mexican friends in there, and they said to me, uh, I said, well, why don't you just go back to Mexico and start a life, build your family, because that's where their families were. And they said, when they get dropped off. They're dropped off at the at the border. You are running. He said. He said Lamont. From the time you get out that car, bullets. You are running for bullets because they are trying to to. You understand what I'm saying? So the reason people are pushing to come to America, they're looking for something different. Yes. They're looking for democracy. They're looking to be cared about. America must hold the standard and must raise the bar of how we treat those that are different from us. That's just the bottom line. And when we don't do that, what message do we send 
to, to governments and people of all nationalities around the world. And that's the argument, Dennis, you hear from politicians who are pushing for fair treatment of immigrants, of illegal immigrants. Why do we do it? We, do we want to make more enemies by being inhumane? Or do we want to work a way to allow people to come and fulfill the American dream? Lisa, your thoughts on that? I think America has a lot of issues. I think America has to learn to treat its own citizens, yet alone people who are coming from other, from other countries. They, they have to learn how to just be open and not look at people a different way just because they're not like you. I think we, we live in a racist, I mean, uh, as a whole, we live in a racist country. Race is a big thing to everybody. Every, you have people, well, not everybody, let me not put everybody in the same boat, but a lot of people look at, look at other people, and if they're not like them, they have a problem with it. It may be white people looking at, at African Americans and Hispanics. It could be black people looking at white people and Hispanics. It could be Hispanics looking at white and black. I mean, everybody's got those issues, but right now what we've got to deal with is that America was mostly a white country, and they have to adjust to the fact that there are other people that are coming to live here and deal with it. And that's the bottom line, uh, and I'll tell you this. Look at this statistic. 30% of Hispanics in the U.S. lack health coverage. In 2010, the state of Arizona passed a law authorizing local police to check the immigration status of anyone that reasonably suspect of being in the United States illegally. So here's what we do. Okay. Gentleman told me right here in Colorado, he was walking up the side of the road. He picked up three rocks. Threw them back, picked up three rocks, threw them back. The police, ICE, the police pulled him over and said, you're breaking the law. You're not allowed to pick up those rocks. That's against the law in the state of Colorado. He was in county jail, getting ready to be sent back to Mexico and deported because he went on a walk with his girlfriend. Went on a walk and picked up three rocks, and they arrested him, said it was in violation of law. And... I, I said I could not believe it. So, my point wait, being wait, this. I, I don't mean to interrupt you. Can you read again what you said the Arizona uh, headline? They said if you suspect somebody being an illegal immigrant to call in on them? Suspect of being in the United States illegally. So, if I'm Mexican. And how do you, how, how do you, how do you suspect Somebody is here illegally. And that, that, listen to me. Arizona, they can say what they want. They have serious racial issues in that state. So if I suspect you, I'm, I'm going into, you know, whatever. I may have a hat and some boots on and maybe a little darker than, than, than the white man. And guess what? Well, maybe he's not here legally. I suspect he's, he's here illegally. I'm calling Immigrations and Customs uh, to pick him up. Enforcement to pick you up. You're going to get picked up because, because some Joe Blow called in and said, I think he's an illegal immigrant. Do you know how sick that sick. sounds? That, that's just like, well, he's wearing a hoodie, got a bag of Skittles and a Coke. He must be a black gangbanger about to break into somebody's house. Listen, that is as sick as that. I'll tell you what, that is starting a trend. It's not only with Latinos. That's why they went down to the... Uh, the, the, the law in New York where they could frisk and, 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 and pat you down and stop you, they had to stop that because, wait a minute, if I'm going down the street, my pants may be a little baggy, I have a hoodie on. In Trayvon Martin's case, somebody profiled him named Zimmerman. He looks like he's getting ready to get into some trouble. 
cost a 17-year-old boy his life because of what he suspected, which in reality, he didn't suspect anything. That was his own racism that made that phone call to 911. So to your point, Cliff, if Arizona makes that law authorizing local police so I can be a bigot, I can be a racist, and I just don't like Mexican people, and if I look at you wrong at a park playing basketball, I suspect. You may not be here legally, so put your hands behind your back, sir. You're going into custody. Yeah. That is sick. That is sick. And we have uh, one of our one of the people in our chat room is asking the exact same question. How do you look at someone and determine their legal status? How That's how unbelievable. could how could any law any any uh, providence how could any person in a in a position of authority law enforcement anywhere? Make that type of statement and say, if you suspect somebody's here illegally, call us up and we're going to come pick them up. Do you know the danger no. in, in, in that proclamation? Well, you wonder, and you understand why the outrage in Arizona is what it is. The culture with uh, the sheriff, uh, is it a rape? Or, uh, the sheriff in Arizona uh, with the pink underwear and all that stuff. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Rapio? Arpaggio. Arpaggio. Arpaio, Arpaio, and you know what? When you look at him, we're going to hear a little clip from him early, uh, later in the program. That you are creating a culture yes. in Arizona that Hispanics will not feel free to, to to live there because they are the second class citizens. They are targeted. How does that even become law? The governor has to sign that in the law. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the governor has to sign that into law. If that had to be signed into law by your next door neighbor, that is still sick. How does anybody come up with that well, and declare that this is the way we are going to live in our state? We this is how we're going to live in America. How does that happen in America? But yet the, uh, the the mass public says, "Oh no, the racial situation has gotten better in America." Well, I don't think it has. There is no way that you could have a law that says you can call us up if you suspect someone is here illegally and we'll come pick them up. How does that say that there has been any advancement in in, uh, race relations in the country at all? I I beg to differ. Well, and and that is just the facts. Uh, It's horrible when you see that. Um, In 2011, uh, it says in 2011, Hispanics had the highest dropout rate. 70% for students ages 16 through 24, more than 6 million Latino children were in poverty in 2010, of whom came from immigrant parents. There has to be a solution. There has to be a way that these issues must be addressed. These are human beings. These are people who are nobody in society is better than the other. Exactly. The white man is no better than the African American, than the than, than the Hispanic, than the Asian, whatever you want. We are people. We are people. Where has America gone wrong? They have lost the human spirit of America. The Asian brother out there bleeds exactly the same. The, my Latino brother, that is my brother. Our Latino sisters, that is those are my sisters. We are all family. And until America reels that back in, we have a real problem. I should not see my Latino brother any different than I see uh, my white brother, my black brother. It should be no difference. 
What is the problem in this country? We are dealing with major issues. And we have, America, I said once, I'll say it again, America has lost her way. And you want to bring America together. You want to be, achieve things. You know what? We can't achieve economic success in this country until we come together. We cannot heal communities if we divide and segregate communities. Do you understand that, America? Dennis? I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I, I truly, as, as as everybody was talking about talking, I was thinking about how a lot of times ignorance plays a major role, you know, in, in stereotyping and and all this different stuff that goes on to separate an ethnic group from another ethnic group, and it's sad to say, you know, uh, if one person from that ethnic group makes a mistake, all of a sudden everybody is like that. And, and that's sad to say. We need to get to know each other, and we need to understand that you know, yeah, every race has a, has a couple out there that's doing things that they shouldn't do. But you can't lump us all in the same uh, in the same boat. You know, and when I think about it, uh, Dennis Lisa Cliff, uh, when I think about being treated that way, uh, it, it is so troubling. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna play a clip for you. Uh, a Cuban family moved in to a neighborhood down in Florida. The disrespect that you're going to hear on this clip to that family, it blew my mind. You talk to somebody this way and treat people this way because they're not you is, is disgraceful. Let's play the clip. So what's the big deal? The big deal is with Big Red, the house that is. It's appalling. Appalling to neighbors who see the color of their neighborhood changing. Who decided on the color? My mom. Oh, really? Fire engine red. If you want to match your Humvee, go back to uh, the Redlands, where you came from. Ariana Mesa came from, ironically, the Redlands section of Miami-Dade. Her family came from Cuba. Now she lives in the Red House. That's the wrong color for some of these neighbors. I actually plan to live here because I'm getting married and I'm moving so there. So you want to you move here and be here with adversity against you. The whole area has main, maintained a certain decorum. And you have turned this into a Carroll City, an overtown. You have destroyed our neighborhood by making it a red flaming house. The Homeowners Association does not expressly forbid any specific color. It does, however, have a blanket rule about anything being a nuisance. Nor shall anything be done thereon which may or may become an annoyance or nuisance to the neighborhood. And we consider that a nuisance, that we consider it a nuisance. And it's, and it's in here. It's 25 years old. In those 25 years, South Florida has changed. Ariana's parents don't even speak English. Wow, that is the, <laughs> and if you heard the young lady talking, she said, I came here to get married. And her voice trembled because somebody, she has a right to be there. And you are mocking her language? You're mocking her language, her culture, her people? 
That should not be allowed. This is this, ladies and gentlemen. That's just one clip. Cliff, we're getting ready to bring our, our guest on here momentarily. Please give me your thoughts as a human being. I'm telling as you. a human being, when you hear that type of mistreatment of that Latino woman. This, it is, I mean, it's shocking. It's appalling. It's, it's embarrassing to say, okay, you have people. I mean, th- th- this was on the news. Yeah. So you have people that are that blatantly racist that are like, I don't have a problem with the whole world knowing that I don't want you in my neighborhood. But but how did you get to that neighborhood? How did how did you make it there? Where did your parents immig- uh, you know, immigrate from to get to America? How do you not look back and say, OK, I remember when my parents got here and, uh, you know, and made their way, made their dreams come true. And then you treat another group of people as if it's like, okay, you're the scourge of the earth. That is, I mean, to say un-American just puts it too light. It, 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 you, there are no words for what just happened on that clip. How do you do that to another human being? A human being. And, say, and, and then be able to say, you're my neighbor. That is not the definition of neighborly to me, not the one I grew up not with. Not at all. And then you're slowly using enunciations. To mock her language. Yeah. And then say, when I move to Cuba, I'll speak Spanish. But you, you speak English right here. What, what, why do you Listen. care what language I speak? It, it's not. And furthermore, the color of my house is not your business. It's not your business. And, and it is something that, I mean, doing the research for this program and learning and listening and hearing uh, what we heard uh, is incredible. Is, is un- in, it, it leaves me speechless. I can't even get the words out that you would treat another human being that way. And, and to hear the trembling in her voice, she had to feel afraid, scared, alone, and very unhappy uh, with how she was being treated. Ladies and gentlemen, we're uh, working on an issue to get Mr. Fegan, Professor Fegan, in uh, uh, here. Uh, have, we were having some technical difficulties earlier uh, trying to get him in queue. We're trying to bring him on. Uh, but let's, ladies and gentlemen, please, if you want to feel free to get into this conversation, feel free to call 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976, and uh, we are going to uh, continue this discussion. And uh, I think we have Professor Figan. Professor, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we are in very serious dialogue, as you have probably heard already. Uh, in regards to the issue of racism in this country, uh, namely with the Latino community, uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity, Professor, and again, thanks for taking time out of your evening to be with us, uh, to tell the American people uh, what you do, what your specialty is, and why, again, we've brought you on this program uh, to give your perspective on the issues. Uh, and I'm not sure if you had an opportunity to hear that previous clip uh, with the, the cruelty, I feel, and the, the lack of human spirit uh, that is 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 levied out, if you will, against the Hispanic community. Uh, a lot of people don't target that and deal with that issue. We're going to deal with it on this program tonight. Tell the folks who you are, Professor, and we'll go from there. Yes, I'm Professor Joe Fagan. I'm a sociology professor at Texas A&M University. I've been working, researching, writing about white racism issues for about 50 years now. Uh, I've done probably 200 articles, 60, 70 books, 
on racism, sexism issues over that period of time. Wow. Professor, let me ask you a question. As you see uh, or hear that's on the front page in the headline of every news agency, media, when we're addressing the racist issue in this country more now, I think, than what we've done in a while, uh, give us your professional perspective and your thoughts on where we are today with the race problems and the racial divide, if you will, in this country right now, and how do we get out of it? We seem to be very deeply divided as a nation. Yes, this country is founded on white racial oppression. You know, most of us don't realize that about 60% of this country's history, that's 60%, was slavery. We were a slavery-based society from 1619 to 1865. That's a majority of our history. After a brief reconstruction, we whites put in place Jim Crow segregation for blacks and Mexicans for about another 90 years. We've only been an officially free country, an officially free country, since the civil rights laws went into effect. The last one went into effect in 1969. So we've been an officially free country for about 47 of our four centuries, 47 years of our four centuries. And it's during that period that we whites invented first enslavement of Africans, killing off, stealing the lands of indigenous peoples. Uh, Then we took over northern Mexico in the Mexican-American War and brought Latinos into a white racist system. And elite white men have been running this racist system for more than 400 years now. Wow. That is that's enlightening. Well, it really is. Uh, and, Professor, it speaks to the culture and maybe why we see things as they are continually unfolding because it is so deep-rooted. And the facts that you just laid out, the majority of Americans have no idea that that foundation. No, most Americans, like most whites particularly, like to say slavery happened hundreds of years ago. Mm-hmm. President Obama, what was it, yesterday, met with the grandson of an enslaved African-American. Yeah, that really so brings still me. the grandchildren of enslaved African-Americans are still alive in the U.S. today. That's how recent slavery was. Right, right. And uh, Ruth Thompson Miller, one of my graduate students, and I did a recent book called Jim Crow's Legacy. Mm-hmm. She interviewed more than 100 elderly African Americans, and they are still alive, right? They're reported extensive pain and suffering today because of the brutal Jim Crow uh, discrimination they faced in border states and in the South up until the late 60s. They're living today in fear and pain. She calls it, you know, segregation stress syndrome. It's kind of post-traumatic stress. And, of course, there's still plenty of discrimination today. Yes. uh, Against not only black Americans, but Latinos, as your program is focusing. 
on, you know, we did a book, uh, Jose Cobas and I did a book, Latinos Facing Racism. Most of our respondents report, you know, regular racist discrimination from white Americans. And the surveys of whites are quite clear, too. The Associated Press did some surveys a couple of years ago, and a majority of the white population agreed with anti-Latino views, a majority of whites. And 57% had a negative reaction to Latino photos in that implicit association test that Harvard does. Right. 57% had a negative reaction just to Mexican-American and other Latino faces. Just to okay. faces. Wow. And that's so that mocking Spanish, that anti-Latino uh, racism that you were documented a few minutes ago, is a common everyday experience for Latino Americans. That's tragic. That's tragic. Yeah. And, and it comes out of the fact that whites buy into what I call the white racial framing of Latinos. It's a negative white framing of Latinos that they're lazy or they're irresponsible or they're criminals or they're not intelligent or they're dangerous. You notice these aren't new white stereotypes either. White applied those to black folks a long time ago. Oh, yeah, right, that's right, right. That's right. Yeah, ra- racist, white racists are not very creative. They keep using old racist stereotypes for new groups that come in. And and professor, and I want to give you get, get your thoughts on something. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk to you about the sheriff Arpaio. Did I get that right? Uh, down there in Arizona, I have uh, watched this man say things you know, do things that are so just blatant. You know, some people that are racist try to, some people, try to keep it not as uh, uh, as blatant. This man is blatantly and basically oppressing Latino people. And we talked earlier where Cliff alluded to the fact, and he had to stop me because he couldn't believe it happened, that in 2010, the state of Arizona, which where Sheriff Arpaio uh, does his whatever, uh, the state of Arizona passed a law authorizing local police to check the immigration status of anyone they reasonably suspect of being in the United States illegally. Well, when you give the statement in regards to the people have a negative uh, response just to the faces of Latinos, then this law is outrageous. Your thoughts on that, Professor? Yeah, he, he, like most white Americans in the surveys, has been brainwashed into thinking that Latinos are all these negative things, you know, lazy, criminal, etc., the stuff that's been applied to black Americans, too, right? Uh, you can ask the question, part of this white framing of people of color, it, it's not just cognitive, it's not just something they th- ideas they think are true of people of color. It is that. But it's also emotionally loaded views of Latinos and other Americans of color. And people like the sheriff seem to be manifesting this intense emotion. You know, it's not just they believe these negative things, they're also very emotional about them. And they're afraid of people of color. Or they're scared, or they're threatened. 
or they think they're not fully human beings and shouldn't be here. You know, we whites like to claim, well, you know, it's people of color who are emotional, right? Especially we white men, we're not emotional. But this is about white emotions, and it's about white male emotions. And another part of this, this white framing of people of color, is the pro-white part of that framing. At the heart of the white racial frame is this insistence that we whites are superior in most every way. So we get arrogant about that. We get very emotional about, well, white civilization is superior. White language accent is superior to Spanish. So we mock Spanish because it's inferior to English in our minds. You know, it's this white arrogance, and you certainly see it in Donald Trump, right? Uh, you, you can't question him, right? right? You, ra- right. You, you point out to him that he's wrong. What does he do? He comes back at you with an arrogant statement that I'm right. <laughs> That's well, the heart of a white framing. Don't tell me what to think. We whites are right. No, without question. And and the firestorm going on now currently uh, with uh, that framing by Donald Trump uh, has the country uh, in a complete uproar. And to that point, I want you to hear this clip. and We're going to talk about it. When Hillary Clinton says this is a racist attack and you reject that, if you are saying he can't do his job because of his race, is that not the definition of racism? No, I don't think so at all. No? No. He's proud of his heritage. I, I respect him for You're that. saying he can't do his job because of it. Uh, look, he's proud of his heritage, okay? I'm building a wall. Now, I think I'm going to do very well he's with Hispanics. Citizen. You know why I'm going to do well with Hispanics? Because I'm going to bring back jobs, and they're going to get jobs right now. They're going to get jobs. I think I'm going to do very well with Hispanics, but we're building a wall. He's a Mexican. We're building a wall between here and Mexico. The answer is... He is giving us very unfair rulings, rulings that people can't even believe. This case should have ended years ago on summary judgment. The best lawyers, I have spoken to so many lawyers, they said, this is not a case, this is a case that should have ended. I, this judge is giving us unfair rulings. Now I say why. Well, I want to, I'm building a wall, okay? And it's a wall between Mexico, not another country. But he's, in not, my, he's not from Mexico. In my opinion, he's from Indiana. He is he's Mexican, Mexican heritage, and he's very proud of it. When Hillary Clinton says this is a racist attack, and you reject that, if you are saying he can't do his job because of his race, is that not the definition of racism? No, I don't think so at all. No? No. He's proud of his heritage. I, I respect him for but that. You're saying he can't do his job because of it. Uh, look, he's proud of his heritage, okay? I'm building a wall. Now, I think I'm going to do very well with Hispanics. You know why I'm going to do well with Hispanics? Because I'm going to bring back jobs, and they're going to get jobs right now. They're going to get jobs. I think I'm going to do very well with Hispanics, but we're building a wall. Wow. Well, there you have it, uh, Professor. I mean, (laughs) I don't even know what to say. I've watched it for the last three days, two days. Uh, Your thoughts on that? That sounds insane to me. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful example of what I was talking about, that the white racial framing of our society, you know, which attempts to explain why we discriminate against people of color, you know, they're lazy or they're shiftless or they're criminal, 
that white racial framing not only has anti-Latino and anti-black subframes, it has this strong pro-white subframe that's the center of the way we look at the world. We're taught from cradle to grave as whites to think of white people, white civilization, white work habits, white ethics as superior. And that's exactly what Trump is, is saying, right? He's right. He's, he's at the white center of the frame. You can't question him. He knows he's right because he's white. Well, and, and, and the bottom line is, is that uh, this is what can totally uh, destroy a democracy, can destroy a people. And I think Amer- the American people are now at a point that they have been shocked or jumper cabled, if you will, into what in the world is going on. What were we even thinking to bring this type of attitude? And, 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 and I don't care if it's Donald Trump or what, whatever politician or person or business person that runs for public office, this type of poison in our society is just that. And we cannot tolerate it. So he makes the statement uh, that, well, I hire hundreds and thousands of Latino workers at my hotels, at this and that. And it's, this, it's the old adage that they used to say, if you say a white man was prejudiced, why well, have black friends? Well, why do you have black friends? Doesn't mean you're not racist. We excuse it away too many times. With, well, my best friend is, uh, has, uh, is black. Or I go to movies with blacks. Well, you don't have a choice. It's a public place. I mean, these are things that we have, as a society, I think, have reasoned out uh, to excuse racism, Professor. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. Trump and his, many of his supporters and many other whites are operating out of this old white racial framing. Part of it is just ignorance. They've been brainwashed. You know, they've gotten a whitewashed history of this country. Uh, They don't know anything about Mexican-American history, Cuban-American history, Puerto Rican-American history, even Salvadorian-American history. They know nothing about Latino history. Let me give you one example. Did you know that before uh, the Cuban migration, the heavy Cuban migration to Miami area, uh, you know, started building up around the 70s and 80s. Before that, the Miami area was bilingual. They had a Spanish and English newspaper. You know, the ATM machines had Spanish and English. There was no fear and anger from whites there. You know, there was no, none of this English-only stuff. It's only when the Cuban immigration started building up in South Florida that whites started getting fearful. And suddenly Spanish, which had been perfectly acceptable before 1980, becomes negatively viewed. You know, what's going on there? It's white fear, white anger. And whites are fearing that the country is changing from a white-dominated country to a country that's going to be dominated by people of color. That's one reason Obama has been attacked so viciously by so many whites online and offline, is he's a symbol for many whites of that uh, so-called browning of America, you know, mm-hmm. the coming white minority. Many whites are very fearful of that. 
And I think that's one thing that Trump is playing into, is this white fear of racial change, and that this country won't be white like they like it. They won't have as much white privilege and power that they've always had. But it no. won, you know, it, even on the Latino, at one time, Spanish was okay. What, it's the oldest European language on this continent. Uh, you know, it was here before English. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's you... just a lot of misinformation, a lot of worry about whites losing, losing power and privilege to people of color, particularly the Mexican-Americans and Mexicans coming across the border. But I mean, I... If, whites were, if whites were in the shoes of those Mexican undocumented immigrants, every white person in their shoes would do exactly what they're doing. No, absolutely. As you pointed out, they're fleeing bullets or they're fleeing hunger. They're trying to get food for their families. How many whites wouldn't do that if they were in the shoes of those poor Mexicans? They would. No, absolutely. And uh, that's part of the story, Professor, that is not told. Uh, we talk about, oh, why are they rushing over to America? Why are they take, do your homework? Why don't you get dropped off at the border of, of uh, Mexico and, uh, and the United States, and let's see how brave and tough you are as a, as a white man, and see if you don't see things in a different perspective when you're dodging bullets at the border from the cartel. And uh, we go to, into the judge uh, that's been the headline, uh, that he, uh, they said he took a huge stand against the cartel had to have uh, 24-hour protective uh, protection because of the stand he took against crime and the things that uh, that people tend to again stereotype all Mexicans to be. Uh, He's the exact opposite. Exact of opposite. The stereotype that Trump and his follow- followers are operating out of about Latinos. That's unbelievable. This guy's an American American. <laughs> He risked his life, right? That's right. He risked his life to help end crime in this country that's connected to his national origin group. How how much more American can you get than that? That's a true Uh, point. And and, uh, And plus, Trump's Trump's lead lawyer. Yeah. Didn't you see what the Trump's lead lawyer said the other day? That this, this judge has been very good. Yes. He's been doing the right thing. He's so it, been it, fair. And, That's and they, Trump's you, lawyer. Sure. Sure. And they, they never asked this judge to recuse themselves. But I think what uh, is very troubling about this situation is that you still have those on the uh, political right who say that, yeah, they they totally cast down what Trump said, that it was racial, but they still are going to vote for him to be president. And that, I think, is the troubling thing that that really strikes me is, okay, you say that you are totally against what he stands for, but then you'll stand with him. That, To me, that is hypocrisy uh, oh. to no end. And, and that brings me uh, you know, to, to a question, Professor, because you have those in American society say, oh, you know, hey, the civil rights and racism has changed over the last 40 years. It's been 40 years. Let it go. You were there 40 years ago. I mean, I wasn't. 
there's those in this room who were pretty young. You were getting your Ph.D. Um, or studying for your Ph.D. in the middle of the uh, of the civil rights movement. What have you seen as far as how racism has uh, has evolved since the beginning of the civil rights era in America? Well, to give credit where it's due, of course, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President Johnson, liberal Democrats, uh, black civil rights demonstrators putting pre- heavy pressure on them, brought down Jim Crow. So I watched Jim Crow collapse. Mm-hmm. And there's good news and bad news in that. The good news is it shows that organized African Americans put enough pressure on the liberal white faction and the white elite to bring major change in crashing down Jim Crow segregation. If people organize on a large scale, they can bring democratic change in this country. That's the good news. Y'all did it, right? Uh, The bad news is the reaction of a majority of whites is we don't like this change. Most whites could accept ending Jim Crow's worst features, but desegregation on a full scale in our schools, in housing, in neighborhoods, across the board, whites can allow tokenism, small changes, some change, but whites have never been committed to a thorough desegregation of this society. You see that in survey after survey after survey. Whites can accept small changes, token changes. Uh, Oprah Winfrey is fine. (laughs) But we don't want to see in our neighborhoods, whites in general don't want to see 15% of our neighborhoods being African American or another 17% being Latino. And we we would be moving out. And we do move out of neighborhoods when they start getting above about 5 to 10% families of color. We, most whites had a backlash, never did fully accept the changes of the 60s, uh, except for modest tokenism and getting rid of some of the worst features. But fully desegregating this society has never been on the agenda for a majority of white Americans, never. Okay, Professor, uh, we're going to get ready to go to a break. How much time? Can you come back with us on the other side of the break? Yeah, you have been with us? Another 30 minutes will be fine. Oh, awesome. Okay, good deal. We are enjoying this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen of America, uh, we've been honored, again, Professor Fagan, giving insight to the racial dynamic, uh, if you will, in this country. And, Professor, we're going to play some clips for you that are going to probably – blow your mind, but may not, given your resume of books you've written on this topic. Uh, uh, and we're going to get into that conversation uh, when we come back on the other side of this break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice around the world. Tonight, we are looking for justice in the Latino community uh, and the racist problems that continue to plague us. We'll be right back here on AJC Radio. equality. 
I stand for individuality. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can add value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because... He's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot. But I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he tells all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with, especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future.
And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we are dealing with a very troubling issue, racism in America, namely in the Latino community. Uh, And it is the numbers, the statistics uh, are staggering. And we've been uh, fortunate to have a uh, Professor Fagan, uh, I'd call an expert, if you will, on the subject of racism and the issues that we're dealing with in the books and the things that he has talked about, he has written about, uh, really is, 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 is huge, if you will, on this platform. And uh, Professor Fagan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, I want to I show something to you, Professor. Uh, we were talking about the outrageous uh, things that people are saying, what they do, how they act. And uh, I had an opportunity to hear a, uh, a clip, which I'm going to play for you in a moment. I want to get your thoughts on that for sure. Ann Poulter, uh, she's, I don't know what you call her in society. Uh, she comments, she writes books. She's, in my opinion, no expert on anything, but made a statement that uh, I believe in an interview with uh, Mr. Ramos from uh, Univision. He's a journalist that really asks the tough questions. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on this clip. You've said that Americans should fear immigrants more than ISIS. Yes. Most immigrants are not terrorists, not criminals. And I have a little tip no for one, you. No one is biologically predisposed if you don't to commit want to a be crime. killed by ISIS, don't go to Syria. If you don't want to be killed by a Mexican, there's nothing I can tell you. Very easy to avoid being killed by ISIS. Don't fly to Syria. Are you really saying that we're talking about 40 million immigrants who exactly. live in this country? <laughs> I thought you were just disputing that. No, no, 40 million immigrants who live, immigrants, I'm not talking about undocumented immigrants, overall immigrants, legally here and those who are not here. 40 million with okay. illegal. So do you think that people are biologically predisposed to commit crime? No, I think there are cultures that are obviously deficient. And if they weren't deficient, you wouldn't be sitting in America interviewing me. I'd be sitting in Mexico. You fled that culture. Uh, I'm at a loss for words on that one. Uh, ISIS is not the threat. Mexicans are. Are you kidding me? Ladies and gentlemen, if you're wondering what that was, Professor, go ahead. I'm, I'm anxious on your thoughts on this one. Yeah, it's amazing that we let folks with so much misinformation and ignorance about these issues become pundits in the media. You were asking earlier, why are we in this situation? Part of the reason is that conservative talk radio and television over the last 20 or 30 years has put out all of this misinformation and made many Americans, especially white Americans, who, who pay a lot of attention to that right-wing talk radio and TV, simply illiterate on racial and ethnic issues in this country. One example is in what she's talking about, right, is uh, this idea of Mexican crime. Most whites are killed by other white people. Right. So if we extend her logic, uh, you're more likely – other white people are more dangerous than ISIS, right? 
That's true. Correct. Uh, what, what is this stuff about? And we know from several studies, right, that undocumented immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than American citizens. And there's an obvious reason, right? Because they want to be here making some money to send back home to their families who are starving. That's right. They can't risk, right, you know, getting drunk and running a stoplight. Uh, So they're less likely to be criminals. It's just so much illiteracy being spouted as though it's truth. It's not true. It's just misinformation. It's stereotypes. I mean, some of the hardest working people in this country are those undocumented immigrants. That's right. And yet the Mexi- this Mexican stereotype is that they're lazy. Really? <laughs> I mean, I tell you what, uh, Professor, I haven't, I've encountered, I've got a lot of friends that are, are Mexican uh, background, whatever. And again, they're some of the hardest working people, some of the nicest people I have ever encountered in my lifetime. And yeah, well, uh, yeah, raise the question of when you're out driving and you and you see guys pouring concrete, like I saw this morning, right, along the major highways. They're out in that blazing 90 degree sun here, right, and they're pouring concrete. And they, the supervisor's white. Everybody else is is Latino. Right. (laughs) With a few black folks in there. They're out there in the sun all day doing the hardest, dirtiest work, toughest work, manual work that's done in this country. And then they're, quote, what? These TV pundits tell us, well, they're lazy or they're criminals. Man, they go when they go home, they flop in bed. They're so exhausted from the hard work they've done all day. And 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 professor, uh, it 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 really is troubling uh, that America seems to decline in race relations in this country. And you would think, and this is the thought that people thought, at least what we've been told, that when President Obama became president, that showed America that we were beyond the racial problems. That this nation once had And that is the biggest Lie It has gotten in my opinion And it's not the blame of the president It has gotten to the point It has exposed Racism On a higher level The hate Yeah he's become He's become a lightning rod for All kinds of racism Online social media In in public discussions but you, you have to keep bringing data back into this. In two elections, 2008 and 2012, white American voters, white voters, overwhelmingly voted against Obama. So it's no surprise, since whites voted so overwhelmingly against him, that a lot of whites are upset at him or stereotype him or cast racist stuff at him. They didn't vote for him. The reason he won so successfully two elections is that voters of color are becoming an increasing share of the voting population in this country. That's right. They look at him look at him as one of them. 
And whites look at him, not all whites, but that 55, 60% of whites who voted against him, right, uh, look at him as a threat. He's a sign of the changing racial demographics of this country. Absolutely. Becoming white minority, the loss of white power and privilege. Wow. And even Hillary Clinton, right? Hillary Clinton is a white woman. But for many white men, and you certainly see this online, and you see some of it in Donald Trump's commentaries, women are also a threat to many white men in this country. Mm -hmm. Women of all backgrounds. So, you know, we had a black president. Now you can just see white men. Now we're going to have a woman, right? (laughs) It's like, really? (laughs) what I want to talk about uh, really quick, Professor, and th- those points, are, I mean, how true it is. You got to call it what it is, and it's so very true. And President Obama went a step further, protecting Latino communities uh, with the DREAM Act, which is what we were talking about earlier, protecting children. Uh, and the president speaks to why he took executive action uh, with the DREAM Act uh, to protect Latinos in America. Let's hear what he had to say, and we'll, be, we'll get your comments on it, Professor. Morning, Secretary Napolitano announced new actions my administration will take to mend our nation's immigration policy, uh, to make it more fair, more efficient, and more just, specifically for certain young people, sometimes called dreamers. Now, these are young people who study in our schools, they play in our neighborhoods, they're friends with our kids, they pledge allegiance to our flag. They are Americans in their heart, in their minds, in every single way but one, on paper. They were brought to this country by their parents, sometimes even as infants, and often have no idea that they're undocumented until they apply for a job, or a driver's license, or a college scholarship. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you've done everything right your entire life. Studied hard, worked hard, maybe even graduated at the top of your class, only to suddenly face the threat of deportation to a country that you know nothing about, with a language that you may not even speak. That's what gave rise to the DREAM Act. It says that if your parents brought you here as a child, you've been here for five years, and you're willing to go to college or serve in our military, you can one day earn your citizenship. And I've said time and time and time again to Congress that send me the DREAM Act, put it on my desk, and I will sign it right away. Now, both parties wrote this legislation, and a year and a half ago, Democrats passed the DREAM Act in the House but uh, Republicans walked away from it. It got 55 votes in the Senate, but Republicans blocked it. The bill hasn't really changed. The need hasn't changed. It's still the right thing to do. The only thing that has changed, apparently, uh, was the politics. Now, as I said in my speech on the economy yesterday, it makes no sense to expel talented young people who 
for all intents and purposes, are Americans. They've been raised as Americans, understand themselves to be part of this country. To expel these young people who want to staff our labs or start new businesses or defend our country simply because of the actions of their parents or because of the inaction of politicians. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and Professor, uh, the president uh, making it very clear the purpose of the DREAM Act. When you hear that, Professor uh, Fagan, does it not register, do you think, or give me your uh, opinion, something of that type of legislation, and like he said, he told Congress, put it together, and I will sign it, trying to work with Congress. And the president felt compelled to move beyond that because of the children uh, who had grown up in this country believing in the dream of America and attaining that dream. Is there a reason, in your opinion, Professor, why that does not register with people, the benefit of that? Is it just politics or just hate? Well, it registers with some of the people. This country has that long history of white racial framing of slavery, Jim Crow, and contemporary discrimination. And lots of whites buy into that, keep those systems of discrimination going, and accept all these racist images of Latinos, blacks, and other people of color, and this pro-white stuff we've been talking about. But there's another tradition in this country, too, and that's the tradition of liberty and justice for all. One of the great things about this country is we have this framing, this way of looking at the world, fairness, justice, equality, liberty, which is also part of our heritage. The problem is, for many whites, much of the time, it's rhetoric. It's not reality. Mm. But there are many points in our history where white leaders, often under pressure from people of color, right, Uh, and they do the right thing. Mm -hmm. The first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He finally got it after, you know, a long, pretty racist career. He finally got it that fairness, the American liberty and justice tradition, had to prevail in regard to emancipating enslaved workers. Then in the 1960s, under pressure from the black and Chicano civil rights movements, Lyndon Baines Johnson decided he had to act out of that fairness, liberty, justice, equality tradition, and backed three civil rights acts and a lot of other anti-segregation stuff, executive orders. And... Obama is acting out of that same fairness, justice, tradition, liberty and justice for all. It's only fair that the dreamers, who are already Americans, should be legally Americans in every sense of that word. We do have this very deep anti-racist, anti-oppression tradition that Americans have organized around from the very beginning. And that includes Americans of color who've constantly pushed this country 
in the direction of living up to uh, liberty and justice for all. Sometimes we get it right. And that's what we need to keep pressing this country in the direction of, organizing, pressing it to make real that rhetoric of fairness, of liberty, of justice and equality, and of democracy. No, and that's a that's a true uh, point, Professor. And I'll tell you right now, folks, uh, you want to join in the conversation, 347-838-8976. Uh, 347-838-8976. And, uh, Professor, the, the information that you give, I think, is something that should be wow. uh, put into communities across this country. Uh, you've impacted uh, this radio station, this radio program tonight, uh, as, as I'm sure all of our listeners out there across the United States and around the world, to hear uh, your perspective uh, on these issues, and they are very uh, thought-provoking uh, and definite, definitely attention-getting, if you will, uh, at least to think about these things. Uh, I think your message uh, that you have and what you're doing is, is, is to be saluted uh, and to be uh, applauded, if you will, to get this message in a world right now that where racism, racism excuse me, appears to be running uh, out of control in this country. Uh, but you got to get people to sit down and listen and say, wait a minute, uh, this is the truth of the matter. Uh, this isn't emotion. This, isn't, this is about what is real uh, and what is happening. We read a statistic earlier that in 2012, uh, according to the uh, 2013, excuse me, um, the uh, Census Bureau stated that there was 53 million Hispanics making up 70 percent of the U.S. population. That's three years ago. That number is probably higher now. Um, and I said earlier, Professor, these, those, num- those are relevant people in society. 53 million people uh, that can contribute to society if we can, again, as you said, when we listen to Ann Poulter, her statement that ISIS is less dangerous than immigrants. I mean, you're talking about pure ignorance. That's unbelievable. And what an insult to the Hispanic people and mr ramos he said are you really saying this (laughs) i mean he was blown away by it so what i want to do uh professor i want to definitely have an opportunity to have you back on our program and some other opportunities i think may be good and we're going to talk offline about it uh, and we'll be in touch with you with that but tell the folks as i was looking over your uh information and the books that you've written in the you're an expert in this field uh, how do people get a hold of you if they want to reach out? Um, how do people uh, uh, get involved in the work that you're doing? Uh, tell the folks how all that works. Yeah, I've got a book that's writ- written for uh, the general public. It's called Racist America. In uh, its third edition, it has documentation for a lot of what I've been arguing and talking about, lots of references and research sources. It's mm-hmm. a book called Racist America. My most recent book came out last summer, is How Blacks Built America. That's the title of it, How Blacks Built America. Wow. Which deals with the huge contribution that African Americans have made in so many ways. But certainly one of the ways African Americans have made this country so much better is to constantly push us toward that 
making reality that liberty and justice for all rhetoric. Uh, if people want to get in touch with me or want to watch my Twitter feed, I'm, um, my Twitter handle is at Joe Fagan on Twitter. You can contact me through Twitter. Okay. Okay, uh, Mr. Fagan, one last thing. I want to get your closing thoughts on something. I had the opportunity to watch the new series, uh, the Alex Haley release of Roots, uh, the new edition of that movie. And I say that because when, I, when you mentioned the title, How Black, uh, Blacks Built America, uh, did you get an opportunity to see any of that? No, I saw the original one, but I didn't get a chance to see this newest one. I would recommend you take a look at that, uh, Professor Fagan. I'll tell you, at the, it was a little hard to watch initially, uh, seeing because you still try to wrap your hands around human beings treating human beings that way. It's, it's uncomprehendable. But as I got through the core, if you will, the foundation of that movie, of that series rather, it, it really shook something in me, and it made you feel proud. Uh, of where you come from and the resolve is as you say uh, how blacks built America and how you say uh, they pushed America to move towards that direction and the perseverance of that uh, of those issues in that movie were, were overwhelming and I think I thought of that as you explained the title of your book we want to take a few moments and thank you so much professor give give the American people your closing thoughts of how do we go and where do we go from here? How do we fix the problem? And how do we implement that change now? Where, we, where should we be and what should our thought process be? Uh, look at American history and see what has worked in the past. When Americans organize on a large scale for progressive goals and press those goals year after year after year for a long time, they bring change. Mm. It was true for the abolitionists under slavery. It was true for the civil rights demonstrators in the 60s. It was true for the labor movement, the union movement, to improve worker conditions under capitalism. The solution for these problems is for good people in all groups, people who are committed to that liberty and justice and fairness frame committed with their souls to that frame, to organize against systemic racism in this country. It can be, if not brought down, dramatically improved if citizens organize, but it takes large-scale organization and commitment over a long period of time. The black civil rights movement didn't just emerge in the 60s. Remember, it started with at least as far back as the NAACP creation in the early 1900s. And black demonstrations against Jim Crow in the North and the South on a large scale in the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, 1960s, it took that organized effort to bring down Jim Crow. And that's the way you change this country for the better is you organize to bring positive change. Absolutely. And, uh, Professor, again, we salute you tonight for your work. This is Dennis uh, Cliff, Lisa, 
the professor has opened my eyes even further. I mean, I'm so oh, uh, moved with the conversation tonight, uh, Professor Dennis. Give your give your thoughts to the professor on his his presentation here tonight. It's awesome, Professor. I just want to say, uh, truly uh, educational. Uh, I've learned a lot in a little bit of time in reference to you know what we when we talk about racism, how we got there, and and how we need to change it. I've always believed that ignorance played a major role, and until we learn each other as a as a person or as a culture, you know, we'll, we'll continue to battle that racism. But again, I can uh, I'm I'm with Lamont. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I've learned a lot, and I truly appreciate all your comments. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, as my grandmother used to say, "Y'all are doing the Lord's work anyway, <laughs> so keep it up." Thank you for that, Cliff. Yeah, I just want to say, Professor, how uh, how grateful we are for you uh, speaking the truth, laying out the facts uh, as they are, not biting your tongue, um, holding anything back about what the real facts and the real issues are. That is so much appreciated because there's so many who will not take that stance. You know, they want to beat around the bush, as it's as it's called, or uh, you know, dance around the the issues. But you face it head on, and and I, I believe. That's the only way to deal with it. When you got a, you know, the giant elephant in the room, you got to deal with them head on. We appreciate that, that uh, you've taken the time to spend with us, like Dennis said, to enlighten us and, and our audience and to lay down the facts, um, you know, just so real and straightforward. Sure. Very much appreciated. Now, y'all keep up the good social justice work, too. Thank you. Okay. And, Professor, uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, that is uh, – uh, Professor Joe Fagan, uh, we're going to have some information at the website uh, about his books, where you can get those books, all the good stuff. Professor, I'm going to be in touch with you again offline. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your evening on this, uh, I guess, summer or spring evening, whichever, depending on the heat in Texas. I know you guys have some some rain and all those things down there, but our prayers and thoughts are with you on those issues. And uh, we, are, we look forward to talking to you and hopefully working with you in the future. Thank you. Take care. Take care. And ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, uh, Professor Joe Fagan. Uh, some of the awards he's received, the WBD Du Bois Career of Distinguished Scholarship Award uh, from the American Soci- Sociological Association in 2013, the ASA Section on Racial and Ethnic Minorities Founders Award for Scholarship and Service, uh, the Center for Healing of Racism Ally Award, Top Professor Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, affordable uh, colleges online.org. You can find that information there. This man, Professor Fagan, doing some things, uh, some pretty big things uh, to educate this country, uh, Dennis, uh, on the racial divide in America and addressing the issues we've been talking about tonight on this show with the Latinos and they, what they have suffered, not only the Latinos, but across the board racism uh, and bringing uh, an end to these uh, types of issues. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming right back to continue the racial issues facing Latino communities right here in America. We're going to continue after this moment and after this break. The racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. 
Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons within the United States. So 497 out of every 100,000 Americans were in jail, about half of 1%. Less than 1%. That doesn't seem very large, but when you separate that population by race, you recognize that the personal effects of the criminal justice system are very unequally shared throughout our society. Whites make up 64% of the total population, but only 31% of the incarcerated population. Blacks represent 14% of society, but 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16% of America, but 24% of the American prison population. Less than one in 100 Americans are currently in jail, but for some races, genders, and age groups, that ratio is a lot larger. For example, if you're young, black, and male, it's closer to about one in four. That means you'd have a higher probability of going to jail than of getting married or going to college. These results are unequal and problematic as poor black communities lack so many of their members. But what can be done? The causes of this trend are undoubtedly complicated and multi-causal. But there is reason to suggest that part of the blame is our criminal justice system itself. In the ways police officers enforce laws, in the ways that laws are written and prosecuted, and more. In many cases, it is not overt racism by individual actors. Many police officers, prosecutors, and judges are undoubtedly trying to be fair and trying to do the right thing. But economics can explain how unequal enforcement of the criminal law happens anyway. This is because the political and bureaucratic structure of the criminal justice system creates perverse incentives. The formal laws surrounding drug prohibition, for example, are written as if to be colorblind. But people with different levels of wealth face different costs and benefits to participating in the drug trade. Different groups consume different drugs at different rates and... Lastly, those groups are politically represented in very different quantities. Thus, they are arrested and incarcerated at very different rates. How could minority groups hope to use the political process to fix inequality when they are systematically over-incarcerated and disenfranchised? Despite noble intentions, politics often does not affect the basic incentives of costs and benefits faced by political or citizen actors. We might need a new approach to social change if we are going to address these problems. We definitely need more study into the causes of inequality, and we should admit that radical changes might be both necessary and preferable to the status quo. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. Tonight, you have arrived at AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight, dealing with a very serious topic right now in America, the racism that's going on, uh, in, the, on in America right now, and has been going on for quite some time, but we're focusing tonight on the Latino community. Uh, some of the things that they have endured, they've had to suffer, the stereotypes, the... Uh, just the cruelty, if you will, uh, of what's actually going on 
Um, and we're going we're gonna to discuss that a little bit further. Um, and I'll tell you right now, folks, this is something that needs to be addressed. Dennis, when you listen to Professor Fagan break down the specifics of racism, the foundation of racism, how it you know, uh, has evolved into a culture in this country right now, that is a very, it's at a very dangerous level. America is very much so racially divided right now. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and it's all uh, based on ignorance. It's based on uh, uh, the fact of privilege, you know, feeling that I'm privileged. I should, you know, I got the authority. Uh, this is my country, not yours. Get out. You know, that type yep. of attitude, you know, is always going to cause friction, always going to cause problems. And, of course, racism goes nowhere until we enlighten people and get them to mm-hmm. understand what, you know, what, who everybody is. You know, understand my culture before you put me down. Oh, absolutely. And I, I pulled a CNN news report all the way back to 2007 that addressed a, a actions. Now, this tells you how far back this stuff goes. Uh, uh, at a, I believe at a college campus uh, targeting Latinos. See what it has to say. A Cinco de Mayo south of the border party off campus at University of Delaware. Students dressed as landscapers with Pedro and Jose name tags on their work shirts. Written on the back, Spick and Span Gardeners. I was disgusted. I was surprised, shocked. All three of the students photographed are members of a campus honor fraternity, a fact that outraged the university's Latino students after pictures of the party were posted on Facebook.com. To know that my own peers um, have looked down upon the Latino community and see us in this manner and have called us derogatory terms, it was just shocking. Other partygoers wore Mexico t-shirts, the back of one said, full of tequila. No matter how far we think that we're going, it seems like people are doing the same things over and over. In recent months, students have been throwing racially themed parties across the nation. At California's Santa Clara University, white students dressed as Latino janitors, gardeners, and pregnant teens at a similar south-of-the-border party last February. At Clemson and University of Connecticut, so-called gangster parties parodied African-Americans. Why does this keep happening? Latino students here at the University of Delaware comprise just 4% of undergraduate enrollment. And as is the case at many schools, there tends to be a division between minorities and the majority white student body. You can see groups of like Latinos are friends and then like groups of white kids are friends. Segregation? Kind of, but I don't think it's anything that's been sort of done on purpose. I think it's just how it naturally sort of evolved. But University President David Roselle says there is no excuse for offending Latino classmates, even if such behavior is protected by the First Amendment. We certainly can't condone it. Uh, there's a question to the extent to which we can punish it. The Phi Sigma Pi Honor Fraternity did exact punishment, expelling these three students for a year. And Latino students sponsored a campus town hall where one of the partygoers publicly apologized. I did not mean it to be malicious at all. I really do care about this issue. You know, I, I did make a mistake, but I, I do care about what's going on. Other students issued a written apology. More important than retribution, Latino students need to say, is the fact that their classmates have had an important lesson on the danger of stereotyping. Well, there you have it. Um, at the University of Delaware, they said they dressed up as Latinos 
as janitors, landscapers, lawn care people, and pregnant teens. Are you kidding me? How is that even possible? And you come back and make a statement, oh, we meant nothing by that at all. That, that's uncomprehendable to me. There are successful Latino people. How do you, how do you, Cliff, help me. I mean, there, I, really, I don't know what to say about that one. I mean, here, it, it's written. They, they have it in black and white. And then just say, oh, we didn't mean anything about it. How is that acceptable? How, how did they not get expelled? Because, I mean, they may as well, uh, you know, put a noose in a tree and, and, and hung a doll up there by its neck. That's unbelievable. With, with KKK on it. And then can you come back from that and say, oh, we didn't mean anything by that? That is, that is totally ridiculous. And, but it goes back to this is the culture that has been accepted at that school. Otherwise, those students would not have felt comfortable to do something that was that hateful. If the administration, if, the, uh, if, it, had been, if it had been proven by the administration that this is not accepted, and that thing, actions like this get uh, don't go unpunished. They would never have felt comfortable to do it. It's, I would say it's the culture of there that college that that is acceptable behavior. Well, there we go, folks. We could spend all night on this and 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 wake up in the morning with Wheaties or Raisin Bran, whatever your liking is, and continue the conversation. But I'll tell you what, folks. We're going to visit this issue: racism in America, uh, Latino America suffering racism in this country. I think uh, our listeners have been informed tonight. Uh, but right now, we change gears. Give us very special thanks again to Professor uh, Joe Fagan, uh, doing some good things down there at Texas A&M and doing some great things. Uh, and we're going to definitely have him back on the program as we continue this discussion. We, we are sure uh, has a lot of legs on it, and we'll be addressing more of these issues to come. Right now, what you didn't know about the RP6 starts right now. I just calls has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Serrigan about the RP6. It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. My name is Gary Walker, and I'm serving a sentence of 11 years in the same prison. Just an aside, not only were the six of us all devout members of the same church, there was not a single criminal charge or conviction among any of us until these unbelievable events unfolded. My name is Clinton Stewart, and I'm serving a sentence of 10 years at the same prison in Colorado. It's fitting that we lived, prayed, and worked together that we should end up dying together, because that is what prison is for us and our families. I am Kendrick Barnes, and I am serving a seven-year sentence at the same prison in Colorado. I was the chief information officer at IRP Solutions, the name of our company. I testify. And then Gary objected. A Donnybrook broke out. 
because Gary said our Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by compelling us to testify. The judge said she had not said anything of the kind, and we demanded the transcript. We were all absolutely unanimous in our verbatim version of what she had said. She denied production of the transcript for that day and at the time, some 200 pages, but assured us that they would be produced at the end of the day. Transcript of that particular conversation in the courtroom between us and the judge has never been produced. I am Demetrius Harper, and I'm serving a 10-year sentence at the same prison. And then in June of 2009, four years later, they finally got a grand jury to indict us. This time, they only called one witness, an FBI agent. And the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich was proven. This is a production that sets the bar and takes a sincere look at the RP6 story. Judge H. Lee Sarakin, retired federal judge, felt compelled to say something. We will not remain silent to see the full story, the full playwright of the RP6 tragedy. Go to YouTube. Search the race card. You don't want to miss it. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. It's strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And, and then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. What we have learned is that the RP6 story was supposed to be the American dream is an American nightmare. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, uh, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it, it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over it. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to jail. Is this happening in America? The American dream of the RP6 has turned into a nightmare, crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, go out to change.org, sign the petition now. America's future depends on it.
And these are the questions, ladies and gentlemen of America, as we talk tonight about the RP6 and something that has been motivated, if you will, by federal retired federal judge H. Lee Serikin that began to write a play, a dramatization, if you will, of the RP6 story and the injustice. We would ask that you go to change.org, sign our petition now, as we ask the president to grant clemency to these six men. Who are they? Dave Zapolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. And Cliff, as we talk tonight, again, as we did last week, uh, go out. We, we send the invitation to go out to YouTube, see the entirety of this video uh, and this production, and simply search the race card face up. And Cliff, we have got, honestly, a huge amount of response on this production. Tell the American people about it. Yeah, I think it brings a, uh, a extra level of intrigue of, uh, you know, just factualization. When you have a retired judge such as uh, H. Lee Serkin that said, you know, I put on a play about it. Now I'm going to record it. Now I'm going to put that out on YouTube. It really speaks to the fact that something went really, really bad in this case for a, uh, a retired federal judge to take his time to put his name to it for the last uh, couple years, making calls to Congress, sending a letter to President Obama. It really speaks to what this case is all about, that, that there was a failure of the justice system. And so, uh, you know, the li- listeners, you got to go out there, you got to look at it, get the background on it, understand what's going on from uh, Judge H. Lee Serkin's perspective, and sign that petition to say that, hey, I am not for injustice in America. That's what it says absolutely. when you put your name to that petition, and we appreciate that. No, absolutely, Cliff. Uh, and uh, also, if, you, if you're on Facebook, share it, tell your friends about it, Twitter, tweet it, do whatever you can to get this message out. It is critical. It takes no time to go out there and sign that petition. Uh, AJC Radio, it just calls. We will continue to pursue justice in this matter. And, again, these are six men who have been locked up wrongfully uh, going on four years now, and we are asking for every person under the sound of my voice tonight on this radio program at AJC Radio to go to change.org. Sign that petition. You say, what is the video all about? What is this production? What compelled a judge retired to get involved at this level to do something? And it is because injustice is very, uh, very uh, uh, unseemly, if you will. It's not pleasant to look at. And when you see it that blatant, it causes people to want to get involved and to do something. It's critically important that we do that. Uh, So we're going to ask you again, please go to Facebook uh, Twitter, tell your friends about it, tell everybody you can about it, and let's get the word out about these six guys. Who are they again? Dave Zapolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. We seek justice at the highest level. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a lot of petitions. Uh, you can go out to change the order. There's petitions about everything you can think of. We're asking tonight to go to, go to change.org and search IRP6. Click that on and sign the petition today, please. If you want to see that video again, go to YouTube, check it out. Just type in the race card face up and you will see it. We need your support and help in getting the message out all across the United States and around the world through social media. Cliff. Yes, I want to say thank you again to our guest, Professor Joe R. Fagan. Also want to say thank you to our production crew, Captain Kyle and Dustin Jackson. 
helping out Ill Skillers Girl in the control room to hear what it is so that you hear what it is we have to say. Also, to our production support team, they give us accurate and up-to-date information so we can pass that on to you. And to the truth, we know you're out there. We appreciate it. Okay, and thank you for that, Cliff. We appreciate that. A very special thanks to Professor Joe Fagan. I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to hear more from him, uh, and we're going to be do- talk- doing some t- uh, talking with him as well. Ladies and gentlemen, make no mistake about it, justice sought is work, and we have to continue to seek justice. And I'll tell you right now, folks, we are just getting started as we continue to bring the message of justice all around the world. Good night, America. We'll see you next time. But just cause has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Sarrigan about the RP6. It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11 year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. My name is Gary Walker, and I'm serving a sentence of 11 years in the same prison. Just an aside, not only were the six of us all devout members of the same church, there was not a single criminal charge or conviction among any of us until these unbelievable events. My name is Clinton Stewart, and I'm serving a sentence of 10 years at the same prison in Colorado. It's fitting that we lived, prayed, and worked together that we should end up dying together, because that is what prison is for us and our families. I am Kendrick Barnes, and I am serving a seven-year sentence at the same prison in Colorado. I was the chief information officer at IRP Solutions. The name of our company. I testified. And then Gary objected. A Donnybrook broke out. Because Gary said our Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by compelling us to testify. The judge said she had not said anything of the kind. And we demanded the transcript. We were all absolutely unanimous in our verbatim version of what she had said. She denied production of the transcript for that day and at the time. Some 200 pages but assured us at the end of the day. Transcript of that particular conversation in the courtroom between us and the judge has never been produced. I am Demetrius Harper, and I'm serving a 10-year sentence at the same prison. And then in June of 2009, four years later, they finally got a grand jury to indict us. This time, they only called one witness, an FBI. And the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich was proven. This is a production that sets the bar and takes a sincere look at the RP6 story. Judge H. Lee Serkin, retired federal judge, felt compelled to say something. We will not remain silent to see the full story, the full playwright, of the RP6 tragedy, go to YouTube, search the race card, you don't want to miss it.